Hello, and welcome to episode two of the Serial Talker podcast. I'm Peter Von Gom. It is a pleasure to be here with you today. We have a very exciting podcast ahead of us. The topic revolves around marijuana, a.k.a. hooch, devil's lettuce, crazy weed, green goddess, Shrek's pubes, <laughs> black gunion, bomba, ashes, aloe vera, alfalfa. Oh, man, the list goes on and on. Oh, I love this one. Smoochie woochie poochie, lime pillows, lechuga, black maria, blue crush, blue jeans, Fine stuff, fatty, machinery, KGB, killer green bud, joy smoke, grass. That just sounds so banal compared to the other ones. Good giggles. I like that. Lots of stories related to marijuana. Now, marijuana is a very interesting topic. In America, there is a marijuana revolution right now. State by state by state, they're all legalizing marijuana. And I think that's a great thing, especially for those who really need it for medicinal purposes. Now, living here in Asia, in Japan, it's a big no-no. You do not mess around with any drugs in Asia, especially in Southeast Asia, where you may just wind up in front of a firing squad. In Japan, marijuana and all other narcotics are absolutely off-limits, illegal, and if you get caught with them, you're in deep doo-doo. So today's podcast is about marijuana, but in a more serious tone. A couple of true stories about drug busts. One justified, the other one was a setup. And to start it off, I want to tell you a true story from my own experience. It happened about 15 years ago. I had a close friend at the time who was also a foreigner and living here in Tokyo. It's common knowledge when you are living here, everybody knows you don't mess with drugs, period. You do not mess around with drugs. It's just not worth the risk of ruining your life, going to jail, if you're married, God forbid, if you have a, a steady job. It's just simply a really, really bad idea to mess around with that here. So this guy messed around with that here, and he got caught. And this is how it all played out. So he was messing around with this Luna chick, and he used to smoke pot with her. Their relationship was on the rocks, and she wanted to meet up. He said, nah, I think we're done. And so she decided to go to the police after warning him that if he didn't meet her, she was going to go to the police. Well, guess what? She went to the police and explained to them that this foreigner was smoking pot and she thought the police better know about this guy. Now, mind you, this guy was not a dealer of any kind. He had a very small amount of personal use Shrek's pubes. And the police proceeded to stake him out as though he were a big-time dealer. 
They had undercover cars parked on his street. All this came out later in the wash. Well, one morning, early in the morning, breakfast time, he hears a rattling at the gate outside. And in comes about half a dozen policemen. Of course, no guns drawn or anything. It's nothing like in America. They had paperwork, a warrant for searching his property, etc., etc. He also had a small plant that he was growing, and he claimed it was, what did he say, uh, Thai lemongrass. Well, <laughs> they had a kit with them, and they did a, a test on site and determined that, yeah, it was not Thai lemongrass. Um, and uh, then they also went out to his motorcycle because during the stakeout, they watched when he came home and they saw where he was stashing his weed. They opened up his motorcycle seat, looked under it. Voila, lime pillows. And Suzuki-san got a Medal of Honor for that bust. So a friend of mine and I went down to check on him a few days later when we found out what had happened and did a, a welfare check. We brought a harmonica, <laughs> thinking that maybe he needed something to pass the time. They weren't having any of that. But you could bring books. So we gave him some books. And... uh there he sat until his trial. He was in the pokey for two full months. And if it wasn't for the generosity of his friends, he would have been in a very, very dire situation. We put up money for him to get a lawyer and fast thinking friend salvaged his job by making up a story that he had an illness in the family and was not able to teach his lessons. Here, the stigma of getting caught with drugs or getting arrested, period, for anything, it is career-ruining. In Japan, there is no bail system. You can't bail out unless you're Carlos Ghosn and you're sitting on mountains of cash. And then you stage one of the most brazen and amazing escapes in the history of escapes that'll be on another podcast in the end he wound up to everybody's relief with a two-year suspended sentence meaning that he did not go to jail any longer and he was able to remain in the country so it's a relatively happy ending to a story that could have played out way worse our other true story today takes place in Indonesia. A group of friends from South Africa went to Bali and traveled through Indonesia and were caught in a drug scam. This is one of theirs unnerving true story. I couldn't believe it. They planted drugs on us. It was like something out of a movie. They were totally trying to frame us. The police are supposed to serve and protect someone you go to for help. But these bastards were setting us up. This is my true story. My true nightmare in Indonesia. I was squashed between two huge guys in the back of a police car, shuttling me down a dirt road to a police station. One of them repeatedly asked me, How much money does your dad make? 
The other guy put his hand on my leg and squeezed it and made a joke about how he always wanted to have sex with a South African. I was starting to really get scared. This was the first time I'd ever experienced anything like this kind of fear, a feeling like I had nowhere to go. It was pure oppression. Let me give you some context. Being a white South African guy growing up in the 21st century, I'd never faced any form of oppression. Being stuck in that moment felt like wanting to fight, but having no arms to punch with. Like if I'd shouted at the top of my lungs, no one would have heard me. No one would have even looked at me. Like I was some test patient in a lab, standing isolated, facing an army of armed men running at me. It felt so crippling that before the tears could surface, the fear of showing vulnerability plugged my tear glands. I couldn't breathe. It was like having a constant panic attack, but knowing that I had to act half normal just to get home safely at the end of the day. In one split second, I appreciated each and every day of the love and respect I'd experienced in my life. I looked out the window and envied the chickens running freely along the road outside. It's time to tell a story of an event that really took place a few years ago. Brace yourself for a deep one. I'm going to start right from the beginning. So, exactly three years ago, at the end of June, I'd saved up enough money after school by acting in some TV ads. A group of friends decided to travel to Bali to go surfing and have a gap year. We were so amped for this. When you fly into Bali and disembark into immigration, you're greeted with these enormous banners. Welcome to Bali. Death penalty for drug traffickers. They don't mince words. It's enough to frighten anyone, even law-abiding tourists. We got settled right away into our Balinese lifestyle. It was awesome. We had the time of our lives, the food, the people, the surf, this simple existence on this tropical island. After partying loads and traveling through the surf spots in Bali for a week, we decided to check out more of Indonesia, so we rented a car and decided to make our way up to an island called Sumbawa. We went up the east and west coast of the island, surfing and just enjoying life. It was amazing. It was just pure bliss, just the perfect lifestyle of no attachments to anything. We spent about two weeks there and started running out of money, so it was time to head back to Bali and just hang out there until we flew back to South Africa. We got back on the road and just drove, switching off from time to time, passing through small villages set in these beautiful, dense jungles, the villagers always beaming with kind smiles when they spotted that we were foreigners. It was my time to drive, and it was the afternoon, and as we passed through a small town called Impe, I got to a narrow, really dodgy road where there was a horse cart on the other side heading towards us. There were no lane dividers or even lines on the road. Suddenly, three scooters carelessly darted out from behind the horse cart, and one guy tries to motor past the horse cart 
and squeeze through a quickly narrowing gap between our car and the cart on the other side. He didn't make it. This guy came head-on into my windscreen, going about 60 kilometers an hour, and we were traveling at about 40, so you can imagine this enormous collision. My first instinct, of course, was to get out of the car and see if everything was okay. Incredibly, the guy was conscious and sitting upright in the gutter of the road. His scooter, on the other hand, was not so lucky. It was a heap of trash just scattered throughout the road. The other guys got out of the car as well, and very quickly we were surrounded by locals with machetes and hunting rifles. Men speaking the local language were running around heatedly, bickering and waving their hands and their weapons. The whole situation got really scary really quickly. As soon as the authorities arrived, they said we had to go down to the police station. By now, it's the first time that I started feeling oppressed by a system. I was trying to explain the story from my side in English, and they were insisting, no, 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 this is what happened, and explaining that I was driving on the wrong side of the road, and that I'd crashed into the biker. This was total bullshit. If that were the case, I would have smashed into the horse cart. So we arrive at the police station, and it's about 8 p.m., and we're sitting in this hot, shanty police building. All of us are looking really worn out and defeated. One of the officers was a 20-something woman with a beautiful smile and hair tied in a neat bun. I remember thinking how attractive she was. If only we were at a beachside club and not this godforsaken predicament. Shortly thereafter, three very new-looking police vans pull up and some guys get out. They could all speak English. This was really comforting. The main guy's name was Sonny. He told us that he was part of the tourist police, so naturally we immediately believed and trusted him. He said he'd help us. We just had to take a trip with him down to some other village. I got into the back of the police van. They said that I should be with them and that the others should drive our broken vehicle. Mind you, the windscreen is completely shattered, so Mike had to hang his head out the driver's side window to see where he was going. There was something ominous that was really eating at me, weighing on me. That sign in the Bali airport. Mind you, at this early stage in this predicament, I had no idea what was about to unfold. I started getting really, really scared. It was about 4 a.m. when we arrived at the police station. I realized this was a jail, too. It was ringed with razor wire and large steel gates at the entrance. The police office was out front, and the jail cells were in the back. And the strangest thing was, no one was wearing uniforms. And there were kids walking around with guns. They told us to park our car and to wait there until the morning when the police station opens. We had sleeping bags in the car, so we pulled them out and laid them on wooden benches and tried to get some sleep. Before long, it was sunrise, and the roosters next door began doing what they do. We basically didn't sleep a wink. I rang my parents and told them what had happened. Dad, we had an accident. Everyone's okay, but... I think the police are trying to shake us down. 
They got to work locating the nearest South African embassy for assistance. At around 5 a.m., another guy arrives and says, I can speak fluent English and I'll be your translator. His name was Ari. At around 6 a.m. when they opened the police station, they put me in my own room. I was in this police station the entire day, explaining the story over and over what had happened with Ari playing translator. After a while, they came up with a figure of what would be compensation to the injured scooter guy and his family, a donation of sorts. They asked for about 20,000 rupiah, which is about 1,500 U.S. dollars. We were totally okay with this. We pooled all our money together, as much money as we had, and handed it over around 5 p.m. I went outside after all this negotiating, relieved and ready to get the hell back to Bali. Everyone looked exhausted. Ben pulled me aside and said, Look, I was standing outside one of the doors a bit ago, and I think I heard one of these fucking cops say something about marijuana, and he had a brown bag in his hand. Holy shit. We, of course, had no drugs on us or in the car. We weren't stupid. There was no way any of us would risk landing in an Indonesian prison and face the firing squad over a bag of weed. I just thought, what the hell are we going to do? No sooner had Ben told me this, they asked me to come back inside for photographs and other procedures. I swallowed hard and went back in. They escorted me into another room that had several uniformed policemen and this antiquated camera. They had me smile and pose in all these different ways, front, rear, left side, right side, smile, no smile, They all seemed so relaxed and procedural. Meanwhile, I'm really shitting myself. What if they did find some contraband in the car? What if one of the guys had some stash and didn't tell us? Oh, my dear God. I started getting a steady ringing in my ears, like that buzz you get after going to a loud concert. I was lightheaded and just seemed to float through the door when we finished. They said we were all done and free to go, but asked to go and get the car and bring it out front for a final inspection. When I got to the car, I noticed that the rubber piece on the passenger side of the window was missing. Like someone had removed it to jimmy the door open or something. I got a really, really uneasy feeling. I immediately opened the storage box next to the driver's seat And when I looked inside, I saw that the CDs that we had bought the day before had been removed from their sleeves, and into the sleeves they had shoved a whole bunch of weed. I can't put into words, like the overwhelming sensation of fear. My heart just completely fell to the ground, and I lost my breath. Then I started hyperventilating. I looked back, and I saw the other guys were not far from the rear of the car. I could see that they worked out what was going down. Jason was just sobbing. It was crystal clear what was happening, but nobody was saying anything. In an instant, my brain flipped to survival mode. 
I pulled my cell phone out from my pocket and called my dad. Dad, we're really in trouble here. We've been caught up in some sort of drug scam. My dad said, Jeffrey, grab your fucking passport and run as far and as fast as you can. The gates to the police station were open, and there was some kind of a local parade going on outside. I slowly walked toward the gates, trying not to look suspicious, and as soon as I reached them, I just turned around and sprinted out of there. I looked back, and all the guys were doing the same. All five of us were running full blast through the gates and into the town. There was a parade of some kind going on, music and cheering. I remember a strong smell of incense. It was like something out of a movie, escaping the bad guys and finding refuge in a crowd. It worked in our favor. Not far down the road, in front of us, was this massive roadblock. It all started making sense. They were going to let us leave, and as we were leaving the town, we'd be stopped at the roadblock and searched and catch us for drug smuggling right outside the police station. I can only assume they were going to try to extort large sums of money out of us to drop the drug charges. We ran further down the road as far as we could, then cut down a side road. We had to get out of sight soon. They certainly would be coming after us by now. Thankfully, there was no one around. They must have all been at that parade. We heard a siren off in the distance. Ben was a bit further up the road from us and motioned for us to get to where he was quick. Let's crawl in here. There was a Vodafone shop. It was housed in a shipping container that was elevated off the ground just enough for us to slip under it. We grabbed our things and got under it. We were all just panting and heaving. We'd just run a marathon. Jess said, What the hell are we going to do? We have no car, no money. In a brilliant stroke of luck, Mike had a number of a lawyer in Bali that he had met on the plane on the way over. This guy's name was Tim. He rang Tim and told him the whole story. He's seen these scams before and said we were lucky to have escaped. Tim got a local from Bali to jump on a scooter and traveled two islands away to come assist us. Hours passed. We saw cars go by, including police vehicles and scooters. A stray dog wandered up and sniffed and peed. We laid motionless. We all sat under there without food or drink until nightfall. Mike got a call on his cell phone. It was our guy. He was just down the street on his scooter. Under the cover of darkness, he started taking each of us one by one to an apartment several kilometers outside of town. After all of us got into this room, we pushed the cupboards up against the windows and the beds and the doors. We were all just so freaked out. If someone from the police station happened to find us, it would be game over. We stayed there for two days. It would take the South African Embassy that much time to get to us. We just sat in this place and waited and waited and waited. I started to wonder what if our contact was going to set us up. He could have totally gone to the police and turned us in. Hey, I know where those guys are hiding out. What's the reward? Had I lost my trust in humanity? Thankfully, I was mistaken. In situations of severe distress like this, you really start to appreciate the small things. 
I remember when the men from the embassy arrived that morning. They knocked on the door. There was three of them. They were all armed. It was like seeing a savior. They said, Look, we came to get you out of here. You've been caught in a drug scam and we need to fly you out immediately. With the South African officials, we drove about another five hours to get to a private airport and finally get ourselves back to Bali. We had a few more days in Bali before returning to South Africa, but it just wasn't the same. We were all just so ready to get home. We had barely and brazenly slipped through a corrupt dragnet and were simply so lucky to have skirted this disaster. As amazing as this trip was, I don't know if I'll ever go back to even Bali again. It's left a bad taste. It's taken me a few years just to get the courage to travel overseas again. But I refuse to let this haunting experience remove my trust in humanity. That's the takeaway. All right. Thanks for tuning in, guys. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did and you'd like to support the program, please consider buying me a cup of coffee. The details are in the description. More true stories on the Serial Talker podcast coming up. If you have a favorite slang for Mary Jane, let us know in the comments. And if it's legal where you are, enjoy your giggle grass. Ciao.